welcome to the next edition of Red Simia podcast from the team here in London. For today's podcast, I spoke with Kenny Lui, head of China practice at law firm Pinsent Masons. We spoke about some common misconceptions that Western stakeholders, including media, often make when talking about China's role in current sovereign debt crisis. We also spoke about the importance of understanding the nuances of China's financial architecture, legislation and culture when approaching Chinese lenders for debt relief. China, of course, has been in the spotlight as the world's largest bilateral creditor and therefore a key party to many life and expected sovereign debt restructurings. Mostly, however, the country has been spoken of as an obstacle rather than a cooperating player. As recently as the IMF annual meetings in Washington last month, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called China the barrier to making greater progress in some of the African nation's debt restructurings. The biggest effort to date to bring China and India to the negotiation table along with the IMF, Paris Club and private creditors happened back in 2020 when the group of 20 nations launched a common framework. Zambia, for example, is being closely watched for that very reason. But the latest we've heard in that situation is that China's Exim Bank has apparently been pushing back on some of the IMF's DSA assumptions published in September. Today's podcast, however, is not about deciphering a specific situation with Chinese presence. It is about learning some of the valuable insights on Chinese lenders' modus operandi, as kindly shared by Kanye Lui of Pinsent Masons. When writing about nations requiring debt relief, Western media often refers to loans issued by both the government and various Chinese banks simply as China debt. The reality, I suspect, is a lot more complex. Well, that's a great question, Yulian, and I think that's absolutely right. I think when we're talking about China loans, that by itself is an incorrect description. When, when looking at China loans, you really, you're really talking about at least three types of loans. The first type are the very traditional government-to-government loans made only through a Chinese government instrumentality to a foreign government borrower. So these historically have come from the Ministry of Commerce in the form of technical assistance. These loans are quite small. They're usually maybe 20, 30 million dollars in amount, and they're almost always written off. Historically, over the last 50 years, there's a very good track record of China writing these loans off when the borrower country cannot repay. The second type of loan are what we call policy loans. These loans are only available from the uh, China Export-Import Bank, okay, so the Export and Import Bank of China, what we call CEXIM, checksum. Policy loans come in a couple different flavors, but when you when we're talking about a checksum concessional loan, these loans are generally provided for a very, very long time and at very low interest rates. So typically around 1.5 to 3% flat fixed, for about 15 to 20 years. These loans, unlike the government-to-government loans, can be made to either a government or a government department or a state-owned enterprise, so supported by government. These loans 
as far as we know, uh, have not yet been written off. But there's no record of these loans being written off. The third type of loans are the commercial loans. These loans are loans provided by Chinese lenders, and these lenders could include so-called policy banks, including the China Development Bank, as well as China Exim Bank, which will make things slightly confusing, as well as other commercial banks, such as the Bank of China, the ICBCs, the China Construction Banks, and many, many other banks in China, at commercial rates for commercial projects. And these loans sometimes are flavored by policy considerations, but are primarily driven by commercial concerns. Very interesting and useful. Thanks, Kenny. Um, I wonder, what does the existing domestic financial and legal setup mean for the Chinese bank's ability to partake in sovereign debt talks and make decisions on debt relief provisions? Well, uh, it depends on what kind of loans we're talking about again, uh, Juliana. So I think um, if we're talking about the government-to-government -government loans, i.e. the uh, technical assistance loans, these loans, as I've already mentioned, are have a very long history of being written off. So there's a very clear legal framework around that. There's a very strong history around that. I don't think there's very much to worry about. However, these loans generally comprise of only 5% of China's overseas lendings. So uh, these are not the majority of loans that, uh, that, that we tend to worry about on a global basis. When, you're when you come to loans provided by a bank, whether it's a policy bank or a commercial bank, I think one thing that many non-Chinese observers do not, uh, do not quite realize is that the banks are literally bound by law to not write off these loans. And what I mean by that is that they literally cannot take a haircut without the express authorization of the state council, which is the highest administrative organ of China. Okay, so this is literally like going to the White House if you're in the US and asking for dispensation to write off a loan. Not something you do that easily. The actual law is called the general rule on lending. It's a law that's been around for quite a while. And originally, that, that law was established, was passed for reasons other than to deal with cross-border loans. But because of how it's being interpreted, it's, it's generally viewed to apply to all loans made by Chinese lenders. And that's why we're here. The second thing that I think uh, observers don't quite realize, unless you're very familiar with how Chinese banks work, is that Chinese bankers, unlike their counterparts elsewhere, generally have and are subject to the idea of personal accountability in terms of the business they do. So if a banker, say a very junior banker, gets involved on a transaction, perhaps their first transaction, their first loan, and then many, many years later, that loan goes into default because of a mistake that banker has made. Uh, then as long as that banker stays in the banking system in China, uh, that, that mistake will go with it and affect the future careers. So I think, I think, I think that concept is not often understood. Uh, and that, that if you understand and look at sort of distressed loans in that way, you'll see why there is quite a reluctance and difficulty in, in structuring Chinese lending.
It's fascinating to learn more about some of the cultural nuances that are affecting the behaviors of some of the people who work at Chinese banks. But um, speaking about the current legislation that you just mentioned, um, prohibiting Chinese banks from taking a face value haircut on loans, are you seeing any signals from the Chinese authorities that there might be changes coming to this law soon? Uh, anything can happen. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, uh, I haven't seen anything of the sort. And I think there are good reasons for this. So I think one of the, 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 the observations that a lot of the researchers have found is that China now ranks as one of the larger bilateral creditors for many sovereign countries. Right. So, so as a result, China's exposure as a whole to emerging markets is probably larger in many respects than other governments. So if China was to authorize a haircut of all of its loans, then that would likely have systemic ramifications. So that's one. So I, I don't think that's going to be a very easy pill to swallow. Second, I think sovereign debt restructurings are invariably a zero-sum game. So for, for those of us who, who does this, it's always a balance between how much the, the borrower government having overextended itself and experiencing uh, and are experiencing difficulties temporarily, hopefully, wishes to, 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 to cut back versus the pain that the lending countries, taxpayers are willing to shoulder. You know, in the case of country, it's always uh, you know, a balancing act. And, and the question is always, well, uh, as far as the government to government loans are concerned, that's written off. So there's a there's a very clear history. But when it comes to commercial loans, why should ta Chinese taxpayers and the shareholders of these banks shoulder the burden of paying for uh, these bad loans? I, I think I think there's a good question as to why these loans uh, should be uh, should be written down. The third point here, which is quite unique to Chinese loan, is that if you look at the type of loans extended by Western creditors and Chinese creditors, you'll see a much more even, so, so even probably uh, even much less diverse type of loans provided by the Chinese. So if you look over the last 20 years, invariably, I think one of the observations we can make is that Chinese lenders tend to lend against specific projects. Very, very rarely will you see lendings that, that go to general spending of a government. You know, so, so you know, the, the Chinese banks do not fund the spending of a, of a sovereign country, you know, not like, uh, unlike, bank, uh, unlike bonds, for example, that, that they raise elsewhere. So in a way, all of these loans are attached to a particular project. So if you're asking for a haircut on, say, a bridge that you just bought, what are you really asking for? You're not only asking for a reduction in the loan, you're also asking for a discount on something that you've agreed to buy originally. And after the difficulty has passed, you'll still benefit from. So I think that also adds to the reluctance of why many loans are considered by Chinese lenders to be sustainable, but also not proper to be written off. We are seeing several examples now where some middle and low income countries have struggled to productively engage with China in their debt relief quests. And you have started talking about it already. 
But what would you say are the key mistakes that some debtors and perhaps the Western stakeholders, such as the IMF and Paris Club, make in their approach to Chinese lenders? Well, that's a that's a great question. So over the last couple of years, we've done a number of sovereign restructurings. And being based in Beijing, we have the uh, uh, honor of acting for both Chinese lenders as well as sovereign borrowers, overseas governments. And one thing that we see is that, um, well, you know, speaking from the lender side, you know, uh, dealing with potential defaults is always difficult and quite stressful. You know, there's the publicity angle. There, there are also politics to think about. The challenge is always how much to say to your lender, to your creditors, and what not to say. So without telling, so you have to tell them as much as you have to, without telling too much. Uh, Whereas on the lender side, they invariably want they want to know everything, right? So so I think there's that there's uh, that point. Uh, and coming from the lender side, I think one of the biggest issues I've seen over the last couple of years uh, is uh, the perception that they're not being treated properly. Okay, so I'm not saying they are really being treated properly, but it, yeah, it's important to make sure that you avoid uh, there being a perception. So for example, uh, in one of the um, restructuring discussions we had in the last, since COVID, um, the government literally came to the lenders and said, look, we'd like to work out a deal. We know this is coming due, but we'd like to pay off another creditor first. So, so that sort of discussion generally don't go down very well. So even if there are very good reasons uh, from the government's perspective for making that request, uh, the general expectation is that all creditors will be treated the same, right? So I think that for the Paris Club, you know, if you're coming from somewhere else, usually that's the expectation. Second, as I mentioned, most Chinese loans are attached to a project, right? And the project and the financing was subject to a very detailed analysis of feasibility study and, and, and ability to repay. And 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 when you when the government from the government's perspective, it might be very tempting to say, oh, this pro you know the 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 country owns from all, owns all these projects and will benefit from the cash flow it generates. Therefore, it makes sense to divert some of these uh, expected cash flows to meet other expectations. But from the lender's perspective, whether Chinese or otherwise, I think the expectation is that a project's revenue should be used for that project. So I think I think that's the first point that's very important to note, which is you, you have to avoid the perception of the lenders being treated unfairly. Second, I think um, one of the biggest mistakes I've seen is waiting for too long. Okay. I think back in the days, I think this is probably well before my time, the partners I used to work for tell me that back in the days, uh, it was standard practice for government to wait until you've defaulted before approaching the creditors. And this shows that they're serious about, about defaulting, serious about the discussions and, and the gravity of the situation uh, as a way to um, uh, make sure everybody's you know, paying their full attention to the matter. I think nowadays uh, the, the, the discipline is to approach problems before they happen. So you start discussions way before. But that's not always the case. You know, I think I think governments always uh, have a process and tend to wait too long. And it's not 
I mean, even over the last 36 months, we've seen multiple instances where governments will literally come to London and say, look, we're due to pay you next month uh, and, and we can't pay you okay, for whatever reason, right? If you add on top, we're going to pay somebody else first. That's even worse. But, you know, uh, the fact that you cannot meet your payment obligations is bad enough. And if you leave just a month or a couple of weeks even uh, to deal with that issue, that makes things critical because most banks are not able to work through the requirements uh, within a very short amount of time. There are approvals that they need to put in. They have to assess the situation. There are multiple loops of reviews they have to go through before they can uh, make a decision. So I think, I think those two things are the, the key points that I would note for a potential borrower in, in distress. Penny, would you also be able to comment on the sentiment inside inside China on the current global financial institutional setup and on China's role in it? This is at the same time a interesting question uh, and also I think something that uh, many of your listeners will be quite familiar with. So I think I think even a decade ago, probably even more than that, China has repeatedly expressed uh, its concerns with its ability to participate fully in some of the multilateral institutions. And many of its requests or efforts to increase its representation at these institutions have been rebuffed uh, by the incumbent shareholders. And culminating in the establishment of the the Chinese-led multilateral institutions such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the BRICS Bank. So these are uh, signs, uh, in fact, that the the results of the, the, the status quo, as it were. So I think I think at the same time, you know, China is keen on participating and participating more in the institute uh, in the international framework. But at the same time, it is not able to do so in a way that 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 makes it happy. So I think I think that is where we are. Okay. Well, given where we are now, where things stand are, um, despite all these challenges, do you see any potential workarounds to unstuck? some of the debt relief processes where China is a significant party to talks. If by unstucking uh, current restructuring processes, you mean unstucking all of the debt negotiation uh, at the same time, including sovereign bank, uh, so like policy lenders, Eastern and Western, bondholders, multilateral lenders, as well as Chinese lenders, both government and non-government, I think, to be very honest, I think that's a difficult question. You know, I, I don't see a really easy answer to. That being said, I think the first step has to be that both sides has to look at each other and be honest about what you're doing. Chinese lenders and loans from China have very long been reported in a way and viewed as an aggregate. So, so but China is not a monolithic entity. If you're dealing with a loan from the government of China, that requires a certain approach that is different from dealing with a loan from a commercial bank. They behave differently. Um, the considerations, the interests are different. You know, it's not it's not China that does the lending, right? It's the different institutions that does the lending. Some re- answers to government departments, other answers to their shareholders. 
And I think one of the reasons why there is a lot of difficulty with uh, the common framework and 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 bringing China into the discussion is is the the perception that all Chinese loans are government loans, which is simply not true. So if the test for whether something is a government to government is whether a bank has shares or is somewhat controlled by the government, then I have to say, you know, government control, government owned bank, government government ownership of banks in the West is not exactly rare either, right? So especially after the bank bailouts. So I think I think we have to understand the different interests and the drivers and work out a deal that is fair, at least seem to be fair. I think right now, what I've seen in many cases where discussions have stalled is um, a push by one or other group of creditors for others to make a, to take a haircut, but trying to exclude itself from the process. Completely understandable, but it's just simply not going to fly. Okay, Kanye, thank you so much for the fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure.